Hey, everyone. This is Chris Ryan from The Ringer. As many of you have heard by now, we lost a treasured colleague and friend over the weekend. Jonathan Charks passed away on Saturday. John was 34. He leaves behind a wife and a son, and we are obviously mourning his loss and sending all of our love to his family right now. If you go to theringer.com slash Jonathan Charks, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-T-J-A-R-K-S, you will find a memorial page for John which has links to his GoFundMe that benefits his family and the amazing writing he did throughout his experience. I encourage you to go there. And if you can, please support the Charks family. Briefly, I will just say that John was among the first people that we hired to work for The Ringer. So he was instrumental in defining the voice and perspective of the site. He has as much to do with what this place is as anyone else. And throughout his experience with cancer, John communicated eloquently about the challenges he was facing, both through his writing and his podcasting. You could never stop John from talking about his passions. It's one of the things I loved about him. Over the last few months, you know, whenever we would talk, whenever I would reach out to see how he was doing, I would try to keep it very John-focused. And the next thing I knew, we would be talking about James Harden or Better Call Saul. He really loved this stuff. Uh, he loved talking about it, celebrating it, debating it, illuminating it. We're going to keep putting out our pods and writing while we grieve but we wanted to let folks know that John was in our hearts and that his family was in our thoughts. Thanks for listening. It's the Ringer Gambling Show, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back, and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus, and present in select states. Gambling problem. Call 100 Gambler, visit rg-help.com. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Welcome into the Ringer Gambling Show. Austin Gale here with Warren Sharp. And we're actually going to be here every single Wednesday throughout the season talking NFL football, some betting trends, looking at games to highlight. I'm excited to do this with you, Warren. I don't know if I can replace the infamous Benjamin Solak. I know he did this with you last year, but I am excited for us to podcast all season long. Absolutely. Look, I think this is going to be an outstanding show. Wednesday's a pivotal inflection point of the week, Austin, and I'm excited to do the show with you to dive into some of the games that we're looking at to understand a little bit better about what just happened and how it's influencing the betting market and opinions that are being swayed. I think it's going to be an outstanding show. And, and like I said, you know, l- later in the week, we're going to be sharing some some picks from House, etc. on Friday, and you do a great Thursday show as well. But this week is a really important week to understand what happened earlier in the betting markets off of reactions from last week. So it's going to be great. 
you know, everyone in their week one analysis, if you look at the Ringer NFL show, you know, previous episodes on this feed is talking about overreactions in week one. I think it's the most common used word after week one is Geno Smith, the best quarterback in Seahawks history are, you know, are the New Orleans Saints, you know, in trouble for, you know, nearly losing to the Atlanta Falcons. A lot of people want to, you know, draw massive, massive takeaways from week one because it's the first time we've seen football in a long time. Some people are calling for Trey Lance to be benched in San Francisco. I think one of the trends, though, that looking at week one since 2005 and this is according to action network underdogs are 54 percent against the spread if you blindly bet them since 2005 in week two and if you are betting an under an underdog that it, or not even an underdog a team coming off a double digit loss in week one they're 61 percent against the spread over the last 10 years should should betters be backing dogs in week two consistently i know blind betting and, and betting trends right off of you know even 10 15 year sample sizes is often square but still it's oftentimes that underdogs are big winners, at least against the spread in week two. Is that a trend you back? Is that something you think about? You know, because so much of this is perception, right? Betting is public perception. Betting is public money. Are you backing dogs more often than you're batting favorites in week two? Or is that trend kind of something you throw out the window? No, I don't think that it is. I think this is an excellent opportunity for a lot of short underdog teasers. Um, we know that teasing dogs through the key numbers of three and seven is profitable. And you're going to have a lot of these dogs that are in good situations. Um, <laughs> I, I, I could go through and name a bunch, but uh, just, just understand that there are a lot of these short dogs that are in very good situations this week based upon the public reaction to the final score. See, here's the thing, Austin. I mean, you and I, we are seasoned professionals. And I don't know how you do your setups on Sundays when you're watching these games, but I throw all the games on my TV and I watch them all at the same time. So I'm catching all the action. I got projectors, I got side screens, and I'm watching every single game at once. And even for somebody like me who's done that for years and years and years, it's always difficult that first week to like keep up with all the action and train, retrain your eyes to like focus on all the different screens and track what's happening as it's happening. So the public isn't doing that at all. The public's like watching the Red Zone channel or catching up on what the final score was or give me the big highlights because I couldn't watch all these other types of games. They're, re they're betting a lot of like the highlights. They're betting SportsCenter. They're betting the final scores in these games. And so when you do a deeper dive into what happened, how this team got there, what they actually looked like, what their efficiencies were, you will have a bigger edge in week two versus the public who's just betting highlights and final scores. It's so important to look at the context of every box score, right? It's easy to go to SportsCenter or go to ESPN and look at box scores. Oh my gosh, this player scored two touchdowns or this team you know, lost in an upset. You look at that San Francisco 49ers score where the you know, Bears win 19-10. If you don't add in the context that they were playing in a monsoon and a lot of the Bears' success was on broken plays, you'd be thinking, oh my gosh, the Niners, you know, the panic button hit it now. And then you look ahead, they're already nine and a half point favorites over the Seattle Seahawks. I think that line opened at eight and a half. I was able to get in early and bet down through those two key numbers in a teaser lake for the 49ers down to two and a half. Now it's a nine and a half. You're not going to be able to get through that three. It kind of brings me to this other overreaction, right? I think everyone and their mother was talking about the Seattle Seahawks, you know, after Monday Night Football. You know, Russell Wilson comes back to Seattle. He, you know, all these narratives building up that the Denver Broncos should dominate this game. There were six and a half point favorites in that game on the road. And Geno Smith in the first half was lights out. It was like 17 of 18 for over 200 yards, two touchdowns, looked incredible. The pass protection was phenomenal. Charles Cross, the rookie left tackle from Mississippi State, and Abe Lucas, a third-round rookie from Washington State, both looked really good in the first half. 
and Geno Smith did too. And then in the second half, people forget just because the Seattle Seahawks won, just because they're watching ESPN, the Seahawks didn't score a point in the second half. Geno Smith went six for 10 for 31 yards in the second half, also had a sack, sack fumble that Charles Cross caught out of the air. I think one of the bigger overreactions, honestly, in week one is that this Seattle Seahawks team that a lot of markets had as a doormat in this league. I think only two teams had better odds to have the number one overall pick in the preseason than the Seahawks. That was Houston, and that was, I believe, Atlanta. Now, with Seattle, there is some public overreaction to Geno Smith playing well in the first half and the Seahawks winning that game that they shouldn't. I am so on board with betting the opposite of that overreaction and looking at the 49ers as a favorite here at home in a big situation for Trey Lance to be a winner. What is, are you similarly in that boat with Geno Smith and that overreaction, or are there other overreactions that you're seeing in the market from week one? Well, that was obviously a key because it happened in primetime on Monday night. It was the last game that we saw, and it was a major surprise to so many people. Like, wait, I didn't think Geno Smith was actually decent. Like, he, he's not elite, but a lot of people thought he was pure trash. Like Drew Locke was <laughs> going to win that job over him. And, and that would have meant that he's kind of trash if, if Drew, if he loses a job to, to Drew Locke with a whole offseason battle, uh, before him and he still can't win that job. He comes back and looks decent in this game. And it was a surprise to people. And you know, the way that Twitter works, if you come out with like a lukewarm take on, wow, Gino is impressive. This was a really good performance you're not going to get any retweets. You're not going to get many likes. But if you come out like Gino for MVP, Gino was the best quarterback of the week. Gino had the highest completion rate of any quarter. Like that's going to get the retweets. And so that's what Twitter was full of was all these really overreactions of how outstanding Gino Smith was in this spot. Now, we also know that Nathaniel Hackett was a complete dummy with what he was calling at the goal line. I mean, forget the end of game situation, calling two goal line shotgun running back handoffs uh, an inch away from the end zone where then he's handing the ball to a running back at the five yard line to then try to run it and get up all those five yards. And he raised those before the defensive player tackles them in the backfield. They lose two fumbles on those plays. I mean, uh, there was plenty of opportunities for um, the Denver Broncos to score here and score more than what they did. And then you got the other side, the flip side of that coin, which is Trey Lance looking like he did. And I don't think people realize, I mean, Trey did not really play last year. Trey has never played in weather. Like Trey, Trey played in a dome in college. He also didn't play his final year before entering the NFL draft. So we don't have a lot of sample of Trey playing in wet weather and all of a sudden there's this deluge of monsoon everywhere and we're asking this guy to go out and play without the most important in my opinion tight end in the sport of football and that's George Kittle um it's going to change the whole offensive dynamic uh the bears you know I don't think they blitzed once in that game um they sat back they were trying to get pressure other ways they were confusing him they were I mean it was just a great game plan by the defense of the bears who had all off season to try to plan for this. Like week two is about, okay, we got a little bit on film of what this offense is trying to do, but we don't have the same entire off season to game plan for one opponent, much like the Seattle Seahawks did for Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos. So we have to factor those things in too. Like 
in week two, you're going to get more. Um, you, these defenses had less time to prepare for this particular opponent, A. But B, later on in the season, after several weeks, these defenses will have more film to utilize in their preparation. So it will be quicker and easier for them to get prepared down the road and they'll be able to make adjustments to what some offenses were doing. But week two does become somewhat of a challenge because they weren't preparing for these guys the entire uh, off season. And so I think for several of these opponents, that is going to be an issue. I, I'm so happy you brought up the Trey Lance comment because in my Power Rankings article on TheRinger.com, I talk about he started four games. He has started four games, you know, over the last, you know, since 2019. You know, he had that showcase against Central Arkansas in 2020, didn't play the rest of the season. Last year, only one start or two starts, and this year, just one. It was, it's four games. And like, that is, you know, when you look at the ratio to expectations for a quarterback to experience, it might be the most lopsided thing we've ever seen in the NFL. The expectations for Trey Lance are so through the roof because of, you know, how the 49ers have you know, positioned him as this you know, guy that has to replace Jimmy Garoppolo, a quarterback that has taken him to a Super Bowl, taken him to an NFC championship. This is worrisome, and it's only going to back the narratives on SportsCenter, like you said, and all those things. But just relax. Just relax on the Trey Lance slander just for a little bit. It was a rainy game. He did not have George Kittle, all of those things. Real quickly, before we get into these games to highlight, I just wanted to pour one out for Cowboys futures bettors. You know, minus 225 before the season to go to the playoffs if you are betting that. It is now down to plus 250. They went from plus 150 to win the division on FanDuel to now plus 600 in wake of the Dak Prescott injury and overall just looking really, really tough on Sunday Night Football in a 19-3 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And on the flip side of that, you are celebrating if you are a Philadelphia Eagles futures better. Right after the draft, they were plus 275 to win this division. After trading for A.J. Brown, after adding Jordan Davis, after all this um, you know, it, you know, improvement to their offense or improvement really to their roster and Closing before the season, they're plus 150. Now they're minus money to win that division. Just pouring one out for Cowboys fans. And Eagles futures betters should be rejoicing in that closing line value. Anything to add to that, Sharp? I think you're absolutely right. I am part of that group. And here's the thing about understanding value and and and, and moving and understanding when to move on things. Yeah, you were you were very smart if you got like plus 275. But guess what? You also weren't a dumb dumb if you bet Eagles to win the division at plus 200 or plus 190 or plus 180. Like I, there's, I don't know, everybody's got their own opinion. My opinion on how I attack marketplaces is, if I think the price is wrong, I'm still going to bet it. And I don't care if I could have gotten something better, I am still going to continue to bet this game. And so just because like we, I was on the Eagles, as, and as soon as Tyron Smith went down, we doubled up and bet the Eagles a ton more and faded the Cowboys a little bit more. And I was still talking like a week after the Tyron Smith, a few days after the Tyron Smith injury, like the Cowboys somehow were still favored in the division. And you could still get the Eagles at like plus 160 and plus 155 to win this division. Who knows if they're actually going to? Like, I never, having done this for so many years, I never count my chickens because you just don't know. You feel much better right now, as you said. Like, but who knows? What if the Washington Commanders absolutely take off and Scott Turner somehow uh, pressed the easy button with Carson Wentz and fixed all his issues, which I don't think is what's going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, and, and who knows? Maybe, maybe every single kicker misses the final kick of the game against the New York Giants and they go 17 and 0, right? Like, I, I, that's obviously not likely to happen but you just never know but 
I really do think that the Eagles are poised and primed to win this division. I think the Cowboys obviously are in some massive problems. Any anytime your starting quarterback goes down with injury in the first game of the season, like that is a huge swing for any of the futures of that team. And if they're the projected favorite in that division, like a massive opportunity in that division as well. And I will tell you, although I disagreed at this point, there are still people betting after the week one game in the futures market, betting the Eagles, fading the Cowboys at that point at like ridiculous numbers too insane to even mention right now. So um, because like there's so much value, like the market was completely changed from like Wednesday before the season started to Monday after week one, those lines had shifted so much because of that injury, but they were still fading the Cowboys and still backing the Eagles. So you absolutely feel great if you had an Eagles ticket from before the start of the season. Always important in the season to look at the futures market if there is value. Obviously, you're betting games every single week if you are an average better or an experienced better, but futures market, there sometimes can be value. Right now, the NFC East is, is handicapped at Eagles minus 185, Washington Commanders plus 500, Giants plus 550, and then you have the Dallas Cowboys, not plus 600 anymore, plus 650 in the NFC East. That's on FanDuel. All right, let's get to some games, Warren. I'm ready to talk week two, baby. No more overreactions. Let's get to some reactions. I love what you brought up, too, in that you want to bet the right number. And so much of betting, and I think this is a common expression, Raheem Palmer, who's on this feed a ton, uh, another professional better who is absolutely fantastic on the mic, he talks about being on the right side of bets. You know, it's, not, it's about attacking closing line value. It's about attacking value. It's about being on the right side of bets. It's not always about results. Like you said, you know, Randy Bullock can miss every field goal you know, this season. The Titans could go 0-17. The randomness is what ultimately will determine the result. But process is so important when you're looking at professional betting, trying to get the best number, trying to get ahead of before line moves and all those things. To start, I want to bring up what I think is going to be the game of the week, my guy. I think the Los Angeles Chargers in Kansas City, week two, is going to be the game of the week. Steve Ruiz, his quarterback rankings on TheRinger.com have Patrick Mahomes one, Justin Herbert two. These are the two best quarterbacks in the league, according to Steve Ruiz. I don't think he's that far off. I think both these guys are absolutely phenomenal, look dominant in their week one displays. The spread opened up at minus three and a half. Chiefs favored by three and a half. That's now out to four and a half on FanDuel. And the total opened at 52 and a half and now out to 54 and a half on FanDuel as well. You kick us off here. What's your read on this game? Two really good quarterbacks that should score a ton of points. I think the average better, the square better is looking at this like it's going to be a fireworks show. They're going to complete a ton of passes. We're going to see a ton of touchdowns. And I'm going to be talking about this game all week. What are you looking at in the advanced metrics? What are you looking at in terms of value for this game? I don't know that there is value on this line right now. Um, I was looking at the Kansas City Chiefs here because they were the team. Th this really is a a battle right now of who was the public darlings this offseason in the AFC West versus who was a team that people were willing to sell, willing to write off, willing to say they couldn't do anything. And that was the Kansas City Chiefs were being written off. Everybody was buying the LA Chargers. And I will admit, because of the value in their price, I was in on the Chargers Super Bowl tickets. Like I have, I have a Super Bowl ticket for the Chargers, but I was not selling the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, and a lot of people were. A lot of people were like, well, they don't have Tyree Kill anymore. This offense isn't going to be able to do anything. And my thought on that was, okay, I bet that just like Tom Brady was out to prove, well, I don't need Bill Belichick to win a Super Bowl. I don't need Bill Belichick to be a, an efficient quarterback. Um, Patrick Mahomes is out to prove, and Andy Reid, like, 
a, we got so much criticism about moving away from Tyree Kill. We don't need Tyree Kill to be a good offense, right? We don't need Tyree Kill to be efficient. And you look at what they did in the preseason. Every single drive that Patrick Mahomes started, they scored a touchdown in the preseason. People, people don't focus on that because there weren't highlights. You know, every single one of those drives was a efficient, slow, tactful drive that marched the ball down the field and resulted in a touchdown. But you didn't see it on SportsCenter. You didn't see it on the highlight shows. Why is that? Well, because there wasn't a 70 yard bomb to Tyreek. You know, there wasn't this Tyreek splash play here or there. So it was like, okay, you know, I don't know what the final scores of these Chiefs games in the preseason, but you're not paying attention to how efficient this offense was. And then you look at what happened last week against the Arizona Cardinals and just the pure efficiency that this team was delivering because, and, and, and you look at that box score, Austin, or you watch the game. They're spreading the ball around to all their receivers now. It's not just the Tyreek and Travis Kelsey show. And I don't really trust my number two wide receiver, my number three wide receiver. So they might get two targets or three targets. Like they were layering in the targets to all of their top three wide receivers, plus their tight end. A uh, little bit of targets spread around to the running backs as well. Like this is just a very balanced offense. Um, uh, Patrick Mahomes was 11 of 12 passing. Averaging 13.7 yards per attempt with nine first downs on non-first down passes where he needed seven plus yards to go. Uh, that's a stat from Rich Rebar's worksheet previewing this game. Um, a league high 44% of the offensive plays for the Chiefs resulted in a first down or touchdown last week. Like this team had 66 plays and 33 first downs. They were the, I want to say the sixth team in NFL history to gain at least 33 first downs and go to third down eight or fewer times. That's one of the stats I love. That's avoidance of third downs, which is something that more teams need to prioritize, in my opinion. I absolutely loved it. Now, that was against the Cardinals defense, though, Austin. Now you're going up against the defense that's been heavily lauded this offseason as fixing those holes and really making some defensive improvements. So I don't know, do you have any take on what you think that the Chargers defense is going to be able to do to try to stop this Kansas City Chiefs offensive juggernaut right now? I'm so glad you brought up third down avoidance because I do think it, it really does hit on, you know, with the Los Angeles Chargers where I do think there is some concern, right? Where I think there is some concern in their week one performance. Before I get to that, though, I want to stick with the Chiefs. The Chiefs, you talk about 33 first downs on 66 offensive plays. The simple analysis, the ESPN highlight analysis, I think we're going to be saying that every single Wednesday this week. The sports center analysis is that Patrick Mahomes is freaking good. And I think that's fine. Patrick Mahomes is freaking good. When you really look at this game, though, you mentioned the receivers. Nine different players caught passes in this game. <laughs> nine different players really spreading the football around. And Josh Allen, I think, had one of the best quarterback performances of week one. And he did it against a good Rams defense. Patrick Mahomes was arguably better against what was a, in way, a lot of ways, a laughable game plan from Vance Joseph. And he blitzed him on 54% of dropbacks. He threw four touchdowns on those. Two times Vance Joseph has done that in his career. The only two times Mahomes has faced more than, more blitzes on more than 50% of his dropbacks were against Vance Joseph. And he threw nine touchdowns in those games. Like that's a problem. But even when you look at the non-blitzing dropbacks, He's navigating pressure really well. He's throwing with confidence to any receiver on the football field. It doesn't matter who it is. And that confidence 
It's something that Ruiz has brought up. He talks about him entering his Michael, you know, Michael Jordan mid-range era, and he is really comfortable playing in an offense where he doesn't have to push the ball downfield, only one completion over 25 yards in this game. If Patrick Mahomes plays like this, I don't care if it's Vance Joseph or, you know, uh, Lombardi back. You know, I don't care if it's the best defensive coach in the world. Mahomes is going to be winning a lot of football games this year. And then when you flip on the other side, defensively, this team was awesome. Created, created pressure on 50% of the Cardinals' dropbacks. Rookie George Karloftis, former Purdue defensive end, was dominant in his debut. I really like this cheap defense. It looks improved. Offensively, Mahomes is entering this crazy, crazy amount of confidence without Tyree Kill that I think he has something to prove. It's a chip on his shoulder. It's a chip on Andy Reid's shoulder. And it looked fantastic in week one. On the Chargers side, yes, they won against the Las Vegas Raiders, but narrowly in a game where they forced three picks and an additional fumble in this game. Like they, I think, should have won this game more dominantly. And I think a lot of it is because of reason that Solak, Benjamin Solak, brought up on the Winger NFL show on the Tuesday episode where he's talking about early down success and early down pass rates for the Los Angeles Chargers. The Chargers ranked 22nd in success rate on early downs in week one. On first down specifically, 30th in success rate, only threw the ball on 43% of first downs, which ranked 26th in the NFL in week one. In the fourth quarter, they threw three passes on their 13 early down opportunities. That's just too conservative for Justin Herbert. Even Joe, <laughs> Joe Lombardi. Lombardi. <laughs> yeah, Joe Lombardi brought up that it was too conservative in the fourth quarter. And what's great and what bails out Lombardi and what bails out conservatism is that Justin Herbert is really freaking good on third downs. He's the you know, second highest graded quarterback, according to PFF, on third downs behind Kyler Murray last year. Top five in that stat in week one. He gets it done in those situations. He gets it done in the red zone. Steven Ruiz could write an entire book on how Justin Herbert is great in these you know, really hot situations of third and fourth downs, high red zone, low red zone. He is fantastic in those areas, and he often bails out some of this conservatism. But if they're going to win against Kansas City, if they're going to win against better teams than the Las Vegas Raiders, Early down success has to come. Early down pass rates, lack of conservatism, because they can't bank on randomness and the high side of variance striking when Brandon Staley makes this decision to go for on fourth down. As he tried to, the last time we saw this Kansas City Chiefs team play the Los Angeles Chargers, they need to be more aggressive on early downs. Brandon Staley wears the crown for the analytics, you know, the proverbial analytics crown for going forward on fourth down and really being aggressive in those areas. Let's turn it up on first down. Let's turn it up on second down. You have one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Let's see less conservatism there. And if they do that, if they flip that script against Kansas City, I think there's an opportunity to cover this plus four and a half. But I do agree with you that the value is gone in this spread now that it has moved from three and a half to four and a half. I kind of liked it at three and a half, maybe back in Kansas City, but I did not have a, I do not have a strong lean on the spread or the total now that it has moved two points from 52 and a half to 54 and a half. And obviously the spread out to three and a half to four and a half. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, two, two things. Number one, completely agree on the Joe Lombardi slander. It's well-deserved, and this was our biggest concern. I went into the season when I put that ticket down on the Chargers with two concerns for the Chargers. The only reason I felt like they may not make the AFC Championship is injuries or coaching. And I didn't mean Brandon Staley not going for it. I meant the way that... Uh, Joe Lombardi has like a regulator on Justin Herbert. It's insane. It's stupid. It's the way that he did it to Matthew Stafford. It's the way that he did it to Drew Brees, although Drew Brees was at the end of his career. So he's like, okay, well, that's what quarterbacking is. No, that's a 
quarterback who's like 40 years old who can't throw the ball down the field anymore. So you got to throw underneath and you got to run the ball and be balanced if you need to. Like that's absolutely not what Justin Herbert is. Um, so completely agree with that slander and completely agree with the fact that early down efficiency and third down avoidance is the name of the game. This has been something that I've been preaching for years and I'm glad that other people are continuing to carry this torch as well because this is the way that teams win in modern football is by quickly jumping out by being efficient and bypassing third downs and building a lead entering the half so that you can then coast in the second half as much as possible as opposed to fight and scratch and claw your way to victory which allows opponents that are inferior to get back into games or prevents you from actually building a lead and then you have to fight all your way through the fourth quarter just to try to maintain it. Now, with the line, I don't disagree. Here's the thing. The Kansas City Chiefs, massive steam in week one. That line jumped hugely from uh, up to six and a half, I guess, against the Arizona Cardinals. We're seeing some of that same steam here. This game was three in the offseason. You know, you could bet the week two games, this game was three. Now, obviously, it's out to four, four and a half. Um, the Chargers have played them tight. The Chargers have played good football against the Kansas City Chiefs. So I think this is going to be an absolutely outstanding game. It's going to be an outstanding game between two of the best teams in football, right? You're, you're, you're picking nits to find reasons why one will have an edge or one will ha not have an edge. There's a reason this line is so tight. Um, I, I do think that the Chargers defense deserves some credit. I think it's a much improved unit with Khalil Mack. He had three sacks in this game in week one. Austin Johnson, Sebastian Joseph Day, Kyle Van Oy, and JC Jackson, I think, is on a timetable to return against Kansas City, which obviously will be an uplift for that secondary. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with one lean I do have, Warren, for that Thursday night game, just because I'm a nice guy, just because it's prime time. I do like, with Keenan Allen unlikely to play, the latest reports are that it's not looking likely he will play in this game. Josh Palmer, who played the second most receiving snaps of any receiver in week one for the Chargers, I like his over at 44 and a half receiving yards, minus 114 on FanDuel. I do think he is going to be a factor in this game with Keenan Allen out. I know they like DeAndre Carter in week one. He did not play more than 14 receiving snaps in that game or 14 routes run. Josh Palmer, I think, plays more snaps, gets more opportunity, and goes over the 44 and a half. I like betting props in primetime. Here's why. Those lines are beaten to hell in efficiency. It's the same reason we talked about with the four and a, you know going from three and a half to four and a half, 52, 52 and a half to 54 and a half. Those lines are getting moved to where there isn't as much mathematical value, where you can find more values where there's less handle, right? Betting first half overs, betting first half unders, also looking at some of the player props market as well. I think with Palmer, that's where I'm leaning. That's going to be a guy I'm looking at on Thursday Night Football. Start the NFL week off right with a no-sweat, same-game parlay every Thursday from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. It doesn't matter if you're new to FanDuel or already have an account. Every Thursday night, you'll get free bets back if your NFL same-game parlay doesn't hit. Same-game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payday. This Thursday night, it'll be Los Angeles Chargers at the Kansas City Chiefs, probably the game of the week right now. Chiefs favored by four and a half. I like this same game parlay, and don't blame me if it doesn't hit. You get free bets every Thursday night, same game parlays. I got Josh Palmer over 44 and a half receiving yards. Keenan Allen unlikely to play Thursday night. I think he sees more targets than he saw in week one. I think he goes over the 44 and a half mark. And then in the total, total over 10 and a half points in the first quarter. We are expecting a fireworks show. I think this game gets off to a fiery start. Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert could both have touchdowns in the first quarter. That gets us over 10.5 points. And then lastly, Los Angeles Chargers spread plus 3.5 first half. The game is plus 4.5. First half, plus 3.5. You can get that at minus 20, minus 120. You add that into this same game parlay. That's plus 576. That means 
$10 wins you $57.60. You need to get in there. Same game parlay on FanDuel. Build your own or choose one of the popular SGPs pre-built for you in FanDuel top-rated sportsbook app. However you want to play, you can bet the NFL every Thursday night with a no-sweat same-game parlay. Just sign up with promo code GAMBLERS. If you don't already have an account, that's promo code GAMBLERS to get free bets back if your SGP doesn't hit. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 years or older in select states, have three plus legs, minimum $1 bet required, refund issued as non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max free bet is $5. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fandle.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fandle.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 533-42 in Arizona. one 888 878-9777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 in New York, 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. On to Tampa Bay at New Orleans. This is one of my favorite games of the week. I'm excited for this game. I I love this public narrative that Dennis Allen and the New Orleans Saints have Tom Brady's number. I love that. Every time I hear that on any show, I'm excited because I just think that Tom Brady is too good for anyone to have his number. And yes, over the last few weeks, last few games, I think it's four games now, he has looked really, really good. Dennis Allen's defense has looked really good against Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think that same chip that's on Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid's shoulder to do it without Tyree Kill is on Tom Brady's shoulder this year to do it against Dennis Allen and this New Orleans Saints. They are on the road in New Orleans as two and a half point dogs. And that total, I think, opened at 48. I saw it open at 48, 47 and a half in some spots. It is down to 44 and a half on Fandle. A lot of money getting under that 48, now down to 44 and a half. I'll let you kick off this one too, Warren. Tampa Bay at New Orleans. A lot of public narrative on the Saints being good enough defensively and at home to limit a Tom Brady-led offense that only scored 19 points in week one. Where if you just look at the box score, this offense from a scoring perspective did not look great. But I'll say this, Tampa Bay kicked field goals on the Cowboys 26, 20, 18, 11, and 29-yard line on their first five drives last week. They got into inside the 30-yard line on all five of their first drives. Missed one of those kicks, went up, you know, whatever it was, 12-12-3, I think, in that game. That is bound for some regression. They are going to get closer into the red zone as they figure out what life after Rob Gronkowski looks like. Your your perspective on this game, your thoughts on New Orleans, two-and-a-half-point dogs at home against the Bucs. Yeah, and, and, you know, Tom Brady seemed more than willing to take some of those sacks. Like, he just got down on those third downs, um... He was being rushed by Micah Parsons and just laid down because they were fine kicking these field goals. I mean, obviously, Tom Brady's getting his line in his face. He wants to throw those touchdown passes, of course. But this team, 
was just in a really good situation. And I think part of that was we, we knew the Cowboys defense was, was problematic and overvalued last year based upon all the takeaways they recorded. The defense itself wasn't a supremely efficient defense. Um, but Tom Brady was playing without weapons. His offensive line was completely banged up. And that's where I think you have to start with this game, uh, Austin. So it's good that you start on this side of the ball. And that is, what are we going to get out of this matchup and out of this Saints defense? So let me ask you this very simple question. I want you to take a guess. Marcus Mariota dropped back to pass the ball 18 times on early downs in the first three quarters last week. 18. How many pressures did the Saints get on those 18 dropbacks? Wild ass guess. I'm going to guess two. Close. Zero. Uh. Zero pressures. Obviously, that ranked worst in the NFL. Every other team had at least two pressures and at least an 11% pressure rate. The average was a 29% pressure rate on early down passes in the first three quarters. The Saints got zero on Marcus Mariota. Now, we know Mariota can 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 run, but that's still going to be a pressure. We're not talking about sacks. Like If they got back there and they forced him to scramble, that would have been a pressure. That did not happen. Um, overall in the game, they got pressure on just 9.4% of Mariota dropbacks. That was 32nd in the NFL. New Orleans got pressure on just 8% of early down dropbacks, which ranked 31st in the course of the entire game. Um, and the Falcons don't really want to have Mariota dropping back to pass the ball a ton, but that is exactly what the Bucs will do. The Bucs are a pass first team. Tom Brady is going to be dropping back to pass. And if they can't get pressure on him, that's going to be a major shock. So A, I have concerns like, what the hell was I watching here from the Saints defense that could not get any pressure on the Atlanta Falcons? That was a big question mark for me is to like take away from that game. The second one, same side of the ball, other phase of the game, the run defense. In 2021, the Saints run defense ranked number one in EPA per rush attempt allowed to opposing running backs. Every single time those running backs carried the football, minus 0.2 EPA. They also ranked number five in yards before contact per rush. They allowed less than a yard per contact per rush on average, meaning that their defense was not was was contacting the running back on average before he could even get one yard past the line of scrimmage. Last week, minus 0.2 EPA per attempt last year turned into plus 0.03 EPA per attempt this year, which ranked from number one last year to number 25 this year. And 0.92 yards before contact per rush last year turned into 2.46 yards before contact per rush this year. That moved them from number five last year to number 28 this year. And we're not talking about Mariota's runs. This is just running back runs. We're talking now Leonard Fournette getting the ball when they do decide not to pass and having a shitload of success potentially against the Saints run defense. So we got to understand what's going on because the way that the Saints saw success against the Bucks over the last four games since Tom Brady's been there has not been their offense lighting up the scoreboard. It's 100% been their defense's ability to confuse and frustrate and, and, and out-scheme Tom Brady and know what he's going to do before he's going to do it and dial up the right pressures. And, and now we've got this Bucks offensive line that's completely ravaged by injury. We got a great opportunity for a solid defense to get pressure on Brady, to slow him down. And yet, 
I'm seeing these numbers and I'm like, what is going on with the Saints defense? I will tell you, I am holding a ticket of bucks plus three and a half that I bet this past summer. And sorry, Saints plus three and a half that I bet this past summer. And the line's down to two and a half at most spots. I should feel really good about that bet. But I don't because I don't know what the fuck I just saw with this Saints defense. <laughs> so I don't know. Do you have any um, insights into what might have been going on with the Saints defense inability to stop the running backs of the Falcons? I mean, you see Cordero Patterson's stat line and inability to get pressure on Marcus Mariota. Those two things are big concerns for me as I try to analyze this game. Yeah, getting ahead, I think I misread that line. It's Buccaneers favored by two and a half on the road against the Saints. The Saints are two and a half point dogs, like you said, move from three and a half to two and a half. And defensively, I it, they just got bullied, right? I think the, the word I use in the notes here is bullied. Like I think the Falcons' offensive line was really, really good at getting push up front, and Cordero Patterson was breaking a lot of tackles. Marcus Mariota looked really comfortable, right? Comfortability in this Arthur Smith-led offense for Marcus Mariota was so there, right? He looks very comfortable in this offense, running a lot of play action, you know, creating open looks and all that stuff. I think that this said more about the Saints' defense than it did say about the Falcons' offense. I don't think we're going to consistently see Marcus Mariota, Cordero Patterson have this same level of success. I think they got hit in the mouth, and we're expecting it because no one was expecting it, right? No one was expecting the Falcons to even cover that game, let alone keep it as close as they did, and no one really was expecting for them to really bully this Dennis Allen defense that has top, you know, really stopped Tom Brady over the last four games. I, I look at this game on the other side of the ball, and you talk about the points being scored – the, the New Orleans Saints against the Atlanta Falcons in week one trailed 26 to 10 with a little over 12 minutes left in the fourth quarter. And I, I thought this was a game they were going to lose in that situation. But Arizona or Atlanta's defense started to play a lot of conservative soft zone coverages where Jameis Winston really feasted. You know, you, you saw so many open throws for Jameis Winston when he was on those like last three drives to come back and win this game, ate up against zone coverage. I think there was a handful of man coverage calls, one of which were Michael Thomas beat A.J. Terrell for a slot fade down the field. Jarvis Landry made a really good play down the football field on that field goal drive. I think that this score is one of those scores where the public's looking at it like, man, Saints really came back and won in late in the fourth quarter and all that stuff. I just don't think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense, which we haven't talked about a ton in this matchup, is going to give nearly as many open throws to James Winston, whether it's in the fourth quarter or the first three, than when he saw against Atlanta. I think this Tampa Bay defense was absolutely lights out against the Dallas Cowboys. Their secondary and linebackers might be among the best in the NFL, right? When you look at just the unit entire in its entirety, Levante David, Devin White, an off-ball linebacker. You have Antoine Winfield Jr. who had a pick in week one. Jamel Dean, Carlton Davis, Mike Edwards. This is such a talented back end that I think points are going to be very hard to come by for New Orleans Saints. And defensively, for all the reasons that you said, and honestly just getting hit in the mouth in week one, I don't see them rising to the occasion for the fifth consecutive time against San Bay Buccaneers. I, I have a I know you have the plus three and a half, but at right now at two and a half, I really like the box on the road minus two and a half. I think that's going to be one of my leans this week. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the other things that's interesting is, you know, Tom Brady historically, you know, hasn't really started all that great. So it's, it's this offense. He's learning new weapons. He's dealing without a strong offensive line. This Bucks offense should get better. This Bucks offense should get more efficient. Tom Brady should get more comfortable. People will know and understand their assignments a little bit better. Um, and so down the road, this, this team should improve. Um, I, I, 
understand the move to the under, obviously. Um, the 48, like that was sort of a rogue number. There was only one spot really that that had it that I saw. Um, but the 46 and a half, when that really opened up, that definitely got bet down to 44 and a half. Um, I would feel good about that if I felt good and better about the Saints defense. I don't disagree with you at all in that I think the Bucks defense played really well. Granted, they were going up against a weaker Cowboys offensive line and Dak didn't have his weapons and some of this we saw. And that game itself last week was probably one of the heaviest bet unders in the entire board when the Bucks played the Cowboys. And that thing was like 53 and got consistently bet to the under and rebet to the under and rebet to the under all the way. I think it closed down at 49 and a half. Um, that was one of the strong and it's a primetime game and it still saw that much movement. So I don't think sharp bettors were surprised that that game didn't feature as many points as it did. Um, but I do have question marks here as to what this Saints defense really is going to be and how quickly the Bucks offense is going to get back on track. But uh, this is going to be a fun divisional game. And a lot of people who were backing the Saints to win the NFC South, because that was a very popular, a trendy offseason pick. Everybody likes to, in, in certain divisions, take the opposite team, right? Like, don't take the number one seed, find a different team to bet to win. And this was the team that everybody pretty much settled on. And this is a very important game for all of those people holding those tickets. Last note on this game, and then we're going to jump to Miami Dolphins at Ravens and then look at Vikings at Philadelphia Eagles to close the show out. I want to bring up that note again. And you spoke to this offense is going to improve. And you talk about Tom Brady's slow starts. Where it's going to improve and where it has to improve is in the red zone and on third downs. And you know, I brought up that the, this team kicked on the 26, 20, 18, 11, and 29-yard line field goals for the first five drives, you know, that's that's going to positively regress. You're going to see them get into the end zone more often as they continue to move forward. And they went only five for 14 on third downs. You know, that's a success rate of 36%. That ranked bottom 10 in the NFL last week. Like that is going to get better. Tom Brady is going to get better. And this offense is going to get better on third downs and into the high red zone and low red zone areas. And that's where I think this, this, this Buccaneers team shows up, right? I think this Buccaneers team shows up against New Orleans Saints. Miami at Baltimore. We were talking a little bit before we started recording, and you're like, man, I got some notes on this game. I feel good about this game, and I'm excited about this one. Dolphins coming off a really, really exciting win. The first win of the Mike McDaniels era. Tutung Vailoa, Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddle went off for a touchdown on fourth and seven right before the end of the half. This is an exciting Dolphins team. And then you look on the other side, Baltimore Ravens beat up on what I think is the league's punching bag right now in the New York Jets, right? They had not a lot of success running the football, but throwing the football, a lot of, you know, a lot of big plays specifically late in this game. Ravens come out with a win in week one as well. Two 1-0 teams, two teams with a lot of high expectations spread right now. I think opened at Ravens favored by four and a half. It's now Ravens favored by three and a half. Money moving on the Dolphins. And then the total I've seen float around from 44 to 44 and a half. That's where Fandle has it right now, 44 and a half. Kick us off with all these notes you were talking about pre-taping. you know, pre -taping. Well, first, let's just discuss the line. And the line was 45 and a half. And this was one of the games that uh, for my clients on on Monday morning and, and the betting group that I work with, like we, we took the under. And, and I'm not going to share like all the things that we did, but... Um, this was one of the games and the market had massive reactions, obviously, um, to any of our releases they do, but like some books were even whole books is taking the whole NFL board down. Um, I think that they weren't sure 
what was happening in the marketplace. But uh, I mean, that, that's kind of cowardly behavior, in my opinion, uh, to take the entire board down. Obviously, that's not what um, books are supposed to do, right? Like you cannot take the entire NFL marketplace off just because we are betting several totals, which we did on Monday. Uh, I've never seen that before, Austin, like from, from a big major book, um, taking down their entire NFL board for well over 10 minutes because of um, a group getting out there and firing on a few a few totals, but that's exactly what happened on Monday morning. Um, but, you know, here here's the thing. This is a really interesting game to me because I'm big on both of these teams and because I liked both of these offenses. Heading into the season, I'm convincing people that the Ravens are finally going to be uh, able to do some things because they got Isaiah Likely and now they can use a lot more two tight end sets and that's going to be improving the efficiency of this offense. And then you talk about the Miami Dolphins and Tua and just how I feel like a lot of people have written him off and he was in terrible coaching situations previously. And so I was on the Dolphins minus two and a half week one against the New England Patriots and I was a big Dolphins backer in that game. But as a pro better, you absolutely must divorce yourself from preconceived notions, preconceived beliefs, and just analyze the data and look at the numbers and understand what happened here. And I'll share some numbers on both of these teams because they both looked like if you looked at the final score or you watched some of the game where they were in control of it, particularly in the second half of these games, I was like, damn. This team is really good. This Dolphins team is good, man. This, this Ravens team is good. The numbers were shockingly bad from both of these offenses. Like we'll, we'll dig, dig into like some of the analytics, the stats of the, but just look at these overarching numbers here. The Ravens had 10 drives that started in their own territory. Only one of them made it out of the Ravens territory. One out of 10 drives made it out of the Ravens territory. Only two out of their 12 overall drives in the game gained at least 35 yards. Only three of their 12 drives gained more than one first down. That's obscene. When you look at that final score and you see that second half, you're like, oh, the Ravens are doing good. Look at the, look at Sports Center. Lamar's throwing three touchdowns. Look, I love Lamar. I'm one of Lamar's staunchest supporters. He wasn't able to run the football with his legs. He wasn't trying to very much. They were not running the football with the running backs. And this offense was Lamar Jackson just chucking the ball down the field. Like he yeah. had 12 yards per pass attempt, highest target depth of any team. They were just hoping that they could hit some of these and score enough points to win this game. And that's why the score was, I think, like three to nothing or something like that, just five minutes before the end of the first half. Four minutes before the end of the first half, the score is three to nothing. So if you're actually watching this game, you're like, holy crap, I thought the Ravens were going to crush Joe Flacco. It's only three to nothing. That's because this offense was very bad and inefficient and not consistent. Then you look at the Miami Dolphins. And look, I bet the Dolphins week one. I bet they're over. I thought that they were going to have success. We did a podcast with Bill Simmons, talked about how the Dolphins were going to potentially have a shot in this division, not to win it, but to definitely make the playoffs and how the Patriots wouldn't make the playoffs. And he's from New England. He loves the Patriots. And, you know, even he was convinced that the Patriots might have a down year this year. But you look at this Dolphins team, and as much as I love and supported them before the season, call a spade a spade. This team only had 18 first downs and they were forced into 14 third downs. We talk about third down avoidance. This team was not avoiding third downs. 22% of their offensive plays were third down. 
That was fifth worst in the NFL last week. Only 21% of their early down plays, plays gained a first down. That was ninth worst in the NFL last week. I mean, this offense was not very efficient. This score was only 10 to nothing with 30 seconds left in the first half before Tua on a fourth and seven hit Waddle and scored a touchdown and it looked like they broke open the lead. Now that at that point, I felt good about laying the two and a half here and that number and that bet like being able to have a really good shot. But this offense was not good. This offense could not run the ball as effectively as I expected them to be able to do. And both of these defenses are quite reasonable. The Dolphins' defense might be a little overrated. They're not as strong as they were when they absolutely shut down Lamar Jackson. I got some more here, but I want to toss it back to you to get your take on that and then share some of your early thoughts about this one. No, I, I think it's super important, again, w- looking at the box score, looking at the final score in, bo- in both their Week 1 games, the Miami Dolphins versus the New England Patriots and obviously the Baltimore Ravens versus the New York Jets. Dominant wins, right? I even opened with their dominant wins. But they were dominant wins on... Not random explosive plays, but really predicated on some of these like noisy explosive plays. A fourth and seven touchdown to Jalen Waddle is just not going to happen every single week. And when you look at the Baltimore Ravens, deep touchdown to Devin Duvernay and Rashad Bateman, where they're largely broken coverages on the Jet side. I, that is the concern, right? Consistent offense is what consistently goes over the total, right? Consistent offense is what consistently goes over the total, not necessarily fluky offenses that are you know, predicated on some of these noisy explosives. I will say defensively, I, I liked what the Baltimore Ravens did against the New York Jets. I think uh, defensively, the Miami Dolphins played against a very easy game plan for Matt Patricia and the New England Patriots. I, I think that when they dialed up the blitz, they were creating pressure that was unavoidable, right? I think they only created pressure on less than 10% of dropbacks in this game. But when they dialed up the blitz and when they were able to you know, fool this offensive line, it led to some havoc plays some where Melvin Ingram you know, takes a, you know, um, a, a fumble into the end zone. And they score a point on the defensive side of the ball. The Dolphins' defense was gifted a very easy game plan to script against with Mac Jones and Matt Patricia leading the way in New England. And for the Baltimore Ravens, they were going against the Jets' backup quarterback and backup offensive tackle. So a lot of reason to tread carefully on backing the Dolphins, backing the Ravens as teams are going to go over their point total here in, in Week 2. And a lot of reason, too, to just temper expectations as they you know, go on throughout the schedule until we see this offense, both offensively and defensively, prove it again and again uh, against more football teams. Yeah. And then like I'll go into some more of the details here. It was I was surprised to see this, but on dropbacks that the Patriots did not blitz. So they're not sending a blitz. They're not sending extra rusher. They got pressure on 43% of those plays. That ranked number one in the NFL by far. You know, last year, the best defense in the NFL was at 35% pressure rate on plays that they did not blitz. The average is down at 28%. So the Patriots were getting a lot of pressure even when they weren't blitzing. That's going to be a pro- that was Miami at home in Miami with the home crowd and the offensive line and the snap count and all that stuff. Now they're going to Baltimore to play the Baltimore home opener and obviously the Miami Dolphins fans don't really travel that well. This is going to be a Baltimore Ravens noisy crowd looking to root for Lamar Jackson and this team to start off 2 and 0 and do we think that they're going to be able to get pressure when they don't blitz? I, I definitely think that they do. Tua was very bad against zone defense. He was good against man last week. He was bad against zone. And guess what? This is not your Wink Martindale. We're going to send blitzes all the time and we're going to play shitloads of man behind it. This is Mike McDaniel's, uh, Mike McDonald's defense. This defense does not 
do that this year. They are playing more zone. And so I think that's going to be a little bit of a challenge for Tua. And then if you look at the running backs for the Baltimore Ravens, um, they rank 28th in yards before contact per attempt. The running backs ranked number 24th. Um, the Dolphins were not better. I talked about how the run game for the Dolphins, they ranked 26th in yards before contact per attempt. So if you look at yards before contact per rush last week, these two teams ranked, their running backs did, 24 and 26. If you look at yards after contact per rush, number 27 and number 30. You look at EPA per rush, number 27 and number 29. These offenses could not run the football last week, but to me, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, I don't think that the Miami Dolphins are going to want to put everything on Tua here. I don't think that the Baltimore Ravens are just going to be happy with the way that they played their game last week, where the only offense they got was on some random passes that Lamar Jackson was throwing down the field deep and connected on. Again, this is not Lamar Jackson slander. I'm just saying that's how this offense operated last week. I think both of these coaches are going to look long and hard at what the hell was going on with our run game? Why were we not successful running the football? Let's practice it this week and let's figure it out so that we can run the ball more more efficiently next week. And let's try to run the football and get our ground game going with our backs a little bit better. I think they're going to emphasize that and they're going to work on that. And as a result of that, clock will be ticking. These runs still might not be great because guess what? Maybe the Ravens who couldn't run the ball last year and don't have a healthy O-line this year and their top running backs still aren't back yet, maybe their backs just aren't going to be able to run the ball as great as we saw them run in 2019 yet until their O-line gets a little bit more improved, which is not going to happen now because they're down to their third string left tackle. And maybe the Miami Dolphins, who had the worst running game in the NFL last year, aren't suddenly just because they signed a, you know, a great offseason addition and some good running backs aren't going to like all of a sudden be the best running game in the NFL. And so these plays may not gain, may not be able to move the team all the way down to the end zone, but they might move the team from their 25 yard line to midfield where they'll pump the ball. And that's exactly what you hope when you're betting the under. Now, uh, obviously we talked way too much about, you know, just betting the total in this one and what I did personally, these games, I like analyzing just everything. All this information hopefully is going to be useful to people listening for just their understanding as to what we think out of both these teams, offenses, defenses, and what they're going to get out of this game. Because I think it's interesting, the spread sitting here at three and a half, open at four, took a little bit of Dolphins money here. Um, You know, again, I'm long on both of these teams. I have high expectations for both of these teams. But I left week one with the overarching thought that though these offenses put up enough points to win these games and got into the 20s, these offenses looked like crap compared to what I was hoping they would, what I need them to look like in order to go as far as I think that they're going to go this year. And I thought that, yeah, 45 and a half points seems like a a low total in modern NFL. But the way that I saw these teams play didn't look great. And also keep in mind what the Dolphins did last year to Lamar Jackson. I know the game was in prime time. I think it was on a Thursday night down in Miami, Austin, where they just sent blitz after blitz after blitz and pressured Lamar. And the um, the Baltimore Ravens only put up 10 points in that one. I, I think your, your point on the rushing attack in, in, in week one for both these teams being inefficient and their 
philosophically, their philosophical interest in recommitting to that in week two, I think is so salient. I think that is exactly what you're going to see from both these teams. You're going to see the Dolphins, who did not have an efficient week one, look to recommit to the running game against Baltimore, and Baltimore's going to do the same damn thing with Lamar and company. Juwan James, the backup left tackle that was replacing Ronnie Staley, who was hurt, you know, injured, I think it was an Achilles injury, lost the season. Uh, Offensive line continues to take injuries. I think both these teams will still be trying to prioritize inefficient rushing attacks which just speaks volumes towards the total and if you didn't get the 45 and a half like warren sharp did total still at 44 and a half and i think that might be a lean for me as well we're running out of time here but i wanted to really quickly hit on the minnesota vikings and philadelphia eagles this is going to be the monday night game in week two line open i think at three i think it was three and a half in some spots but three might be where most people had it now at two and a half that's favored by the eagles at home and then the total I think opened at 48 and a half and is now stretched out to 51 and a half, maybe even 52 in some spots. So Eagles favored by two and a half against the Minnesota Vikings. Kevin O'Connell and Justin Jefferson played a Green Bay Packers defense that broke coverages left and right and really, really struggled to do anything right. You know, passing off zone coverages against Justin Jefferson in this Minnesota Vikings offense. They dominate in week one. And then for the Philadelphia Eagles, the offense looked great. In a lot of ways, running the football well, Jalen Hurts looked good. A.J. Brown went off for over 100 yards, that new debut. But defensively, concern. I think Raheem Palmer said he will not be betting the, the Eagles until John Cannon is fired. <laughs> like he is not backing the Eagles until this defense figures it out. They gave up way too many big plays to DeAndre Swift and the, this Detroit Lions team. We're always in control of that game in week one. They ended up winning 38-35. But man, did they give up a lot of big plays? Did they give up a lot of yards? And that is the concern for me looking at this game. Very quickly, your thoughts, Vikings-Eagles, and can this Eagles defense stop the Vikings enough, Justin Jefferson enough, to cover the two and a half? I think it's good that we're only touching on this game quickly because there are a lot of other podcasts on the Ringer Gambling Show that are going to hit this game by the time we get to Monday night. But that being said, I will add, the Vikings shifted to 11 personnel this offseason, right? With the new offense, they shifted to 11 personnel. No team shifted more to using 11 personnel runs in the first week versus last year. They they ran the ball out of 11 personnel in the first half of games, twenty less than 25% in 2021. That was 30th in the league. This year, it was 62% in week one. That was seventh most in the league. We predicted that going into the game against the Green Bay Packers, and we talked about how good the Vikings were when they were, and Cook was out of 11 personnel runs. Guess what? That is a recipe for a problem for the Philadelphia Eagles because Jonathan Gannon's defense, run defense, last year ranked number nine versus runs from non-11 personnel. They allowed only 3.7 yards per carry, ranked 16th in success rate, ranked 14th in EPA per attempt out of runs that were not in 11 personnel. But runs that came in 11 personnel, they allowed 4.92 yards per carry, which was 30th, almost a 50% success rate, which was 31st. They were terrible in EPA per attempt as well. They got torched in runs from 11 personnel against the Detroit Lions. They averaged, the Lions averaged 9.6 yards per carry in 11 personnel runs and I think ran it 15 times out of 11. Um, I, I just think that the Eagles defense, Raheem is not incorrect by stating that this defense could be problematic against the Vikings' new strategy of using more 11 personnel. And on the other side of the ball, Look, I, I'm really intrigued to see how Jalen Hurts looks in this game. They obviously kind of took it slow. They only threw the ball beyond 10 yards down the field last week four times. And they had great efficiency when they did it. But like this was a J- Jalen Hurts run the football 
Jalen Hurts hand the ball off and, and Jalen Hurts throw short for the most part. Um, it was a conservative game plan on the road uh, last week. I'm really excited to see how the Philadelphia Eagles end up opening things up a little bit more this week, in my opinion. Um, and the Minnesota Vikings, one stat I'll share on that side of the ball, I was shocked. They ranked 28th in pressure rate in the first three quarters of the game. And that was against the Green Bay Packers offensive line, which was playing without multiple starters. And Aaron Rodgers not having his complimentary wide receiver, Devontae Adams, his number one this year. Alan Lazard was also out. I mean, you got to get some pressure. And they were not able to get pressure on Aaron Rodgers last week. Um, I I think that's going to be interesting to see if they're able to get some pressure here. Because that was at home with the best crowd noise home field advantage that you can have when the other team is on offense. That should have been brutal for that Packers offensive line with backups in there. And it still was not. And so now they're going on the road to try to get pressure on an Eagles offensive line that is significantly more healthy and buttoned up than the Packers was. And good luck. That's going to be a challenge. Will be a fascinating game. Make sure to tune into the Ringer Gambling Show and Ringer NFL feeds. I'm sure a lot of preview content will be coming down the feeds as we move along. Um, you know, towards the week, man. Monday Night Football, Minnesota Vikings at Philadelphia Eagles. I wish I bet the over at 48 and a half, out to 51 and a half, maybe even 52 and a half. And that spread actually isn't at two and a half anymore. It just got down to one and a half. Eagles only one and a half point favorites over the Minnesota Vikings. A lot of money backing Kirk Cousins and the Vikings. You will hear that's us the again. biggest question, Austin. That's yeah. the biggest question is Kirk. Kirk Cousins in prime time. Like, was that (laughs) this is Kirk stinking in prime time and unable to play? Or was that Kirk and his head coach used to put all this pressure on him and say, don't screw it up, Kirk. Go out there, but don't fuck things up. And, you know, will he feel better about this offense with Kevin O'Connell, have more confidence and play a little bit uh, more effectively in prime time? It's going to be fascinating to see because those narratives are definitely going to come back out if Kirk throws up a stinker. I love that thought that it wasn't Kirk in primetime. It's Zimmer's pressure in primetime. Maybe getting to Kirk. (laughs) We'll see if uh, fun-loving Kevin O'Connell can make things different for Kirk on Monday night. You can hear us again on the Ringer Gambling Feed every Wednesday throughout the season. Big shout-out to our producer, Mike Morgan. Until next time, Austin Gale, Warren Sharp, the Ringer Gambling Show.